Hi and welcome to Illuminal Space. My name is David Fidelli and in this episode I'm in discussion with Henry Purcell. Henry is an Aboriginal Australian who was adopted as a baby and raised by non-Aboriginal parents. Today he works in child protection, working for the same Aboriginal controlled organisation that facilitated his own adoption. Henry is also an activist and DJ, performing under the name DJ Fosters. He hosts his own radio show and uses music as a way to bring people together to share messages, raise issues, and improve health and well-being. In this discussion, Henry opens up to reveal his own personal journey. It's a fascinating story told with real intimacy, and I'm really proud to be able to share it with you. Make yourself comfortable as we enter a liminal space. Uh, hi, Henry, and welcome to Illuminal Space. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me on, David. I really appreciate it. Uh, pleasure. Um, we've got a lot to talk about um, of your own personal story and with a very deep message. So let's get straight, straight into it. Um, Sounds I th- good. I thought we'd start, I'd just um, mention a few words that you wrote to me a few days ago, and we can launch into it from there. In today's climate, there's a lot to consider and think about. I'm finding my voice and I want to use any platform to advocate for not only my people, but also to facilitate a wider conversation for the rest of Australia to walk alongside us on this journey towards reconciliation. Who are you, Henry, and who are your people? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a big question, isn't it? Um, I'm, uh, I, I suppose, um, I, I'm, I've always known myself as, um, someone who's a, a Noongar from Kaurna country um, in South Australia, that's where Adelaide is. Um, but most recently, um, after having conversations with my auntie, I'm, I'm learning that my language is actually Narunga. Um, I've also learned recently that my maternal grandmother is Wujabalik, which is actually on um, Victorian land. Um, and that enables me now to have some cultural authority around the decision-making that, um, some of the decision-making that's um, being made around um, Victorian Treaty, um, and I'd always, I'd always kind of had a bit of a, um, a, a little inner conflict around um, being Indigenous, being raised in Victoria, but not actually having my country on this land. But now that I'm learning that I do have roots here um, on Wundjabalik country, as well as my roots as a Noongar over in South Australia with Ghana and Naranga. Um, so I guess, I guess what I'm saying is, who am I? Well, it's and always an evolving journey. And it's always something where I'm learning more and more um, each day, each week, each month, each year. And um, I suppose that's, that's a lived experience for a lot of Aboriginal people, David, um, who, who, who have been um, disconnected from culture and um, are trying to reconnect with their, with their roots, their spirituality and their, and their country. Um, yeah, so really I'm adopted. Um, I'm one of three Aboriginal adopted children. Uh, I've got an adopted brother who's Yorta Yorta. I've got an adopted older sister who's Lachi Lachi. And, uh, and uh, I think my journey has probably been the most personal in terms of navigating the Aboriginal space. Um, so yeah, it's a, again, when you say who are you, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a big question with a, with a, with a very big response, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you, you've you've brought up already for me something so key, which is we are 
we generally we like to 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 stereotype people or, or pigeonhole people or, or you know either individuals or cultural groups or um, and you've just explained in a very interesting way that how complex this question is and in Australia more often than not an outsider such as myself may say you're an Aboriginal you've just tapped onto ident- uh, issues right regarding identity and, and culture and spirituality and language groups and land and this is a for me the perfect way to actually begin this this chat because you've you've instantly shown that no story is singular everyone has their own lived experience um and thank you for that and i hope that this very very humble platform of a liminal space um can can give you um a, a small space to to be able to share your your story really in any way that that you would um that you would like to yeah look uh, again it's just it's great to be able to come on and and, and have these discussions with with someone who, who obviously we, we we don't know each other very well but there's an immediate connection around like-mindedness around this stuff and you know, I think to be able to progress the Aboriginal conversation, to be able to progress these conversations around culture, around identity, around um, being able to, you know, in Aboriginal culture, we say, um, you know, being connected to culture is an absolute lifeline. You know, if, if you're connected to your culture, if you're connected to your land, then your ability to be able to succeed in life is increased tenfold immediately. So to be able to progress the conversation, you know, like-minded people like us need to be able to get together. We need to be able to have these discussions. We need to be front-footed and proactive around addressing these issues when it comes to people that maybe oppose or maybe don't quite understand or um, the significance of that disconnection from culture and that, that not knowing how to form your identity properly. So, yeah. yeah. Well, um, let's, I think the best way to, to start uh, in this story is for you to perhaps begin with your own story um, from the beginning, let's say. Um, so I, I guess it starts with uh, my, my, my natural mother, Jo, was 14. She was living in Albury with her family um, and uh, she met uh, a strapping young lad named Walter who was a... a a very keen and great boxer within that town. Now, these smaller towns, particularly in the 80s, and, and you know, even Wangaratta and some of these places now, they still tend to have a mentality that's not so progressive as perhaps we might have here in, in Melbourne or within an urban environment where these conversations are constantly being had. There's, there's, there's this level of um, insular, uh, it's a little bit insulated in these smaller communities. So it's, it makes it a little bit more difficult to kind of break through stigma and break through um, break through, yeah, break through stigma and, and, and have, you know, the, the conversations that need to be had. Um, but yeah, so Joe and was 14. Um, and, uh, I think Walter was maybe 18 or 19 and they got together. Um, uh, but unfortunately, um, he was, um, some, someone that, um, would drink and, and, and didn't react well when he, when he would get, when he would get drunk. So of course, um, Joe, um, fell pregnant with me young and came to Melbourne to stay at a refuge, um, in Kew, I'm pretty sure, um, for the, for the duration of the pregnancy. So during that time, 
my mum and dad, so my adoptive mum and dad, so just to make it clear that my mum and dad are my adoptive parents. They're the ones that changed my nappies. They're the ones that told me my values. They're the ones that tried to keep me connected to culture, um, even though that they didn't have the resources available to be able to do that. So really, um, when she came to um, Melbourne for the, when Joe came to Melbourne for the pregnancy, um, a social worker called um, my mum my and said, um, they, my mum and dad had already adopted my brother Daniel and my sister Kira, so they were well known within the Aboriginal adoption agencies at the time. Actually, VACA, the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency, which is where I work now, they were the facilitators of my adoption. So my job itself isn't just, I don't have a professional connection to it, there's actually a, a long-term 34-year personal connection to the organisation as well. So mum, uh, uh, the social worker spoke to mum, said there's an Aboriginal baby that needs a loving home. Um, obviously, mum and dad were, were preferenced first because they had already, um, you know, demonstrated that they they um, were great with my brother and sister. So that process was facilitated. And when I was born on May 21st, I had some time with my natural mother, Jo. And then um, on July 29th, I was adopted into, um, you know, the family of which I've known my whole my whole life. Um, and that family has been always super supportive of that connection to Aboriginal culture, has always been super supportive of me knowing about my adoption. It was an open adoption, so when I was old enough to be able to understand things, I was able to read letters that, that my natural mother, Joe, I'm just going to call her Joe. so um, that Joe had written to me explaining as to why I was adopted. And over the years, it's become apparent and very clear to me through my professional work and through my own personal journey, that the reasons why I had to be adopted didn't come from a misguided, they didn't come from a misguided place. Um, certainly had Joe been 15 years old when she had me and tried to keep me, she would have been ostracized by her own community. She would have had to drop out of school. The education that she could receive, she wouldn't have been able to receive. That would have impacted me through transgenerational trauma. So, my my Joe at a very young age was very insightful in being able to make these decisions. So when the, she made the decision to adopt me, she explained that in a letter to me that I've read now more and more as I've gotten older. And um, and yeah, it's um, it's uh, I've got nothing but respect to her uh, for her. I've got nothing but respect for for the decision that we made we that she made but also the immense amount of respect I have for my um, for mum and dad around the the fight that they, the, and the level and extreme lengths they went to to ensure that we could have cultural safety in an environment that, you know, I was the first Aboriginal or second Aboriginal person to go through my primary school and then my secondary school, you know. Back then it was Captain Cook discovered Australia, you know. My mum was the one that would go into these schools prior to me starting at the schools and saying, listen, when you teach history, you need to teach history this way because you're going to have a Kuri in your class, <laughs> you know? Um, so she would preemptively go in and sort things out for me so that I could go in and have that cultural safety. And that's something that I've learned to really respect and, and um, something that I've translated for my own family as well with my son, um, with kindergarten and childcare, make sure there's an acknowledgement of country on the wall, make sure that the books that are being read in the curriculum have Aboriginal content. You know, so um, I in that in, in saying that, I suppose I didn't have 
an experience of oppression as an Aboriginal person. I was proud to be of my identity and I was very much um, known for being Aboriginal and um, I always thought it was really cool. So my experience of oppression is the same as the lived experience for another Aboriginal person. However, in saying that, I feel like that gives me a platform to be able to use my voice in a way now to advocate for Aboriginal people that might not be able to have the confidence to have that voice, yeah. you know? So, Wow, that's uh, a thousand different things we could we could follow from from that. Uh, it's brilliant. No, it's it's fantastic. I just wanted to. I think there's one thing that people would be um, uh, just want to be clear on the fact that your parents are non-Aboriginal. Yes. So my so and I've I've learned this very recently as well at a carers function that um, my mum and I went to go and speak at. Um, so my mum's from um, Perth. So she's from a part of Australia that even in 2020 is very, 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 very backward in their, in, in their way of thinking around Aboriginal issues. Um, she lost um, her, her own parents pretty young and she ended up with a family friend in Broome and that family in Broome had servants. Those servants were Aboriginal. Those Aboriginal servants had children that were around mum's age and mum preferred to hang out with them she preferred to hang out then rather than hang out with the white kids that lived in or the Anglo-Saxon kids that lived in that in Broome at the time. And I think very early on that planted a seed for mum that um, obviously stayed with her and she nurtured that and then it grew into the family that we have today. Um, and my dad's from Bermuda of all places and his dad owned a cinema and in Bermuda um that's in that cinema with segregation the um the black children had to sit um on the balcony and once again my dad preferred to hang out with the black kids so he would sit up on the balcony with them so when dad came to australia he didn't come with the systemic kind of ideologies that that kind of uh um are threaded through australian history and my mum's own lived experience meant that she was very open-minded towards adopting Aboriginal children. So when mum found out she couldn't have children herself, um, they fostered different children for a little while and then they just um, made the decision that the right thing to do would be to adopt Aboriginal children. Wow. Um, my oldest brother is one of the, my older brother is one of the first Aboriginal babies to be adopted into a non-Aboriginal family with Aboriginal community consent after the Stolen Generations. That was in 1979. So that... The Stolen Generations were still going on well into the 1970s. So, And your brother and sister, um, do you come from the same um, cultural group? Do you come from the same part of Australia? Um, um, my, my brother is Yorta Yorta and my sister, we're not too sure. She's from Mildura, so we're thinking maybe Lachi Lachi um, country, but we've never been able to clarify that. My sister's story around her adoption is, is a whole probably podcast in itself because it's um, whilst my experience has been quite positive because, you know, my natural mother went back to school. She got an education. She had more children of her own. There's been a lot of success in the family. My, my sister's experience was very much different in terms of the mental health, the domestic violence, the transgenerational trauma, the drugs and, and whatnot. So um, we're from different groups, but, you know, growing up as a family, you know, as a family unit, you don't, think about any of that stuff you just think about you know that's your brother and sister and 
you know, what's that, what, what's she doing to annoy me right now and this <laughs> and that, you know. It was all very normal and all very loving and, and, and whatnot. And did you know from an early age that you were adopted? And did you did you sense this? Um, um, did you yeah? Did, did did you sense anything was different in your relationship with your parents, or it was just you were like every other child that went to school with a with a mum and dad? Yeah, it was really you know um, it was really uh, it was really the latter. It was I just thought I was having a normal upbringing. There are little things that kind of come out i mean when you look back in retrospect i guess you kind of go well you know families keep photos of their children in their wallets you know but then you go well there's actually a proper reason why dad and mum had to keep photos of their children in their wallets is because they needed to be able to you know um they they needed to be able to prove that we were their child even though we were a different skin color um and uh so little things like that play out but for the most part growing up as a child there was we didn't experience any of that. I, I've always been told I was adopted from as early as I could understand. But again, mum and dad were quite, they were, they were measured in a very reasonable way around exposing me to some of that stuff. Um, one, you know, I didn't see a photo of my natural father for the first time until 2016, I think. But there was a photo that mum got in the age newspaper from 1989 or 1990 of a bloke named Walter, but it was a mugshot of him in the section of the age that said, you know, this guy's wanted by police. So, you know, mum didn't pull that kind of stuff out and show me that until later. And then of course it ended up that that was a different Walter, but for a long time you think, well, you know, what if that was him? You know, there's, there's those questions as well. So. And so you don't currently, you don't currently have contact with your father, but you do have um, uh, with, with Walter. I, I, I've with Walter. I've I've since 2016. Um, so my my auntie, who I learned this information about being on Woodrow account, she um, country. She's on the she's on the she's the deputy chair of the Australian Council of the Arts on the Australian Arts Council, I should say. And um, she was filming the third season of The Leftovers, and they were filming part of that season up in Broken Hill, and um, and like really coincidentally um, Walter was an extra on the set because they were, they were recruiting people that lived in that community to come and work as extras and they bumped into each other. And this was in 2016 and she took a photo of him. And I remember very clearly coming home from just voting the federal election in 2016, I think. Or maybe 2015. I can't. I'm sorry. I can't remember. But um, I was driving down the freeway, and I get an MMS message, and I see a photo of this person, and I'm like, "Holy crap! I think that's Walter." And I had to pull over. So these things, when you find out stuff as an Aboriginal person, and it's not isolated to Aboriginal people at all. It's, it can happen with anybody. But for some reason, for Aboriginal people, when you find information, really important information out, it always seems to happen in very um, awkward situations or uncanny situations or situations that you least expect. So because of that photo, I did reach out to him. I haven't established a relationship as such, like I do have with my mum's side, uh, with my natural mother's side. However, um, that's a chapter that I will, that I will, that's a journey I'll go on. You're a young guy, you've got everything ahead of you. Um, yeah, I mean, that's how I truly feel when I first, um, just got an oversight of your story. That's exactly how it, it, it sort of felt in lots of ways, a, 
a story um, with an incredible beginning. It is. I mean, it's you. Ha you have to be kind to yourself as well, and you you know uh, you need to be mindful of the way information and the the way the knowledge that I get around finding out more about my family. I, I have to be mindful around what I take on and what I carry as a burden and what I choose not to carry as a burden. Because at the end of the day, like I said at the beginning, my mum and dad, they're the ones that changed my nappies. They're the one that taught me my, they taught me my value system. And um, it's not to diminish um, anything about my Aboriginal story, but um, it's, it's about being able to view myself as a, I always say this as a, like a pizza and that the totality of me isn't based on one slice of that pizza. You know, someone that commits a crime, that's one slice of the whole pizza. It doesn't make up entirely who they are. So who am I to judge them based on the one slice of pizza, to put it in a stupid analogy, right? And it's the same as me. Who am I to burden myself of one slice of pizza when there's the rest of the pizza for me to be able to appreciate and be mindful of and be considerate around, you know? So that's the kind of mantra and the kind of ethos I try to bring to um, my journey. But I will say definitely that it's been harder for... It's always been harder for my natural mother than it has been for me because I've been very much protected. So when I met my grandmother, so my jo Joe's mum, I went up to Aubrey a couple of years ago to meet her for the first time. And for me, it was really important because I'm gonna meet my grandmother for the first time. But there was also a level of, I'm already quite established in my identity. This is going to be, this is going to fulfill me in a very enriching way, but perhaps not at the same detriment that it would for my grandmother, who's been yearning to meet me for 34 years, or 33 years at the time. So, of course, when we met, it was beautiful. I'm always very cool, and it's always a very cool situation. There's never any awkwardness. It's always like, it always just feels like we already know each other in a way, you know? And it, it makes sense that it's like that. And then my, my grandmother, we, we had pizza, we, we, we had some scotch, we, we we talked about things that we'd yearned for, things that we'd missed. I listened to stories. We shared, you know, we shared stories with one another. It was very beautiful. And it was the weekend of Invasion Day weekend two years ago when it was extremely hot. I'm talking like 43, 44 degrees. And in Albury, you know, you can add another couple of degrees to that. So at about 11 o'clock, um, one of my natural brothers, Johnny, who I'm very close with as well, took her home. And then the next morning we woke up and my natural mother got a phone call and it was from the police and saying that my grandmother passed away in her sleep. And I remember thinking at the time, wow, that's, that's really sad. And I, but I also remember thinking at the time that of how poetic it was as well. There was a sense of poetry about it as well that she'd waited all this time, and I don't want to make this about myself, you know, I can only be, I can only look at it through my own lens, but it was almost like she'd waited all this time to finally meet me. And then we met and she saw that I was okay. I saw that she was okay. And then she went home and then died in her sleep. So it's poignant and it's sad, but, um, 
these are the things that you have to, these are the experiences that you have to make the most of. And these are the experiences that sometimes there is no logic and there is no rationale and you can't bring it down to, you can't, you can't justify it with rationale and logic. Sometimes you just have to let things be. And um, I'm just really glad that I got to have that one night with her. That's an incredible And as, as the rest of my family are. And do you feel that there is something beyond the logical and the rational in that story? Um, I, look, I've never really considered myself too much of a spiritual person. I will say, however, that I've become more spiritual since connecting with Aboriginal culture. I will also say that in my early 20s, experimenting with psychedelic drugs also probably brought a little bit of that out for me. It really did. I don't, I don't mean that half haphazardly either. I think that that kind of was quite an insightful experience for me as well. Um, but yeah, how can you not hear a story like that or go through an experience like that and think that there's something more, more to this, not something that's already scripted or something that is not anything like that, or there's something high above that's determining our path. I don't believe in that kind of thing, but I think that there's something spiritual that definitely plays a part in those types of experiences. Yeah, definitely. And, question. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it's fascinating because it's, I mean, I, I find so much about your, your story touches on, and I didn't know that part of your, your story and, and I could feel all the, all the hairs on my arms and, and elsewhere sort of, you know, raise at that. It's, it's very interesting. I'm really, yeah, very fortunate that, uh, that, that, that we're having this discussion. I'm, I'm gaining a lot from it myself. Um, and yeah, I think, I think, I think the word, the word that from that experience as well is it's very humbling as well because, you know, it reminds you of, it reminds me certainly of how lucky I was to be as protected as I was and, and, and be, and because I was protected and because I had that security, I was able to have the emotional intelligence to be able to process and work through these things. You know, mm. some, some other people don't have that same upbringing and so when things like this happen they don't have they're not able to process it in a way that's going to allow them to come out the other side of a grieving process or come out the other side of a traumatic process and get the therapeutic benefits from it i think that um i think a lot of people yearn for that and through whatever reasons through their own life experiences they're not able to um they're not able to have that you know and connect in that way so, yeah and you've touched on so many of these words um as far as identity, cultural um, aspects. And, and I know that you are very strong um, in approving of the way that you were brought up by, by your family. And they were very, very sensitive, it sounds, in, in many different ways in, in keeping you um, attached to your Aboriginal identity. Um, can you talk to that? Yeah, uh, it's, it's important. It's, it's just as important for me, for people to know that I'm Aboriginal as it is for them to know that my parents are non-Aboriginal and how, how strong advocates non-Aboriginal people can be in terms of their service to Aboriginal community. I see it all the time where I work at, at the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency. I see non-Aboriginal staff that just 
put themselves on the front line and, 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 and not only do they put themselves on the front line, but they ask the curious questions and they come back to us to be able to get that cultural knowledge and get that cultural competency so they can do the job and represent us as a people in the right way. We live in an environment that is, um, that is overwhelmed by social media and it's overwhelmed by opinions, but as well as that, it's because of that, there's, there's so much more division than there ever has been that it's important to sometimes recognize and understand that beyond the noise of the division, there is actual like-mindedness and there is actual unity taking place. And I think when I talk about my own, my mum and dad and the way that they were such strong advocates for me and my culture, I think that really reinforces the idea that there is that sense of, there can be that sense of unity. And my mum's story isn't a happy one, losing her family young. You know, my dad was being sent off to boarding school, you know, um, at a young age and stuff and and not having the relationship that he might have wanted with his family it's not a happy story they're not happy stories my story perhaps isn't meant to be a happy story my sister's story certainly not a happy story my brother's story is is fraught with trauma as well but out of that came this sense of unity and the sense of family and the sense of belonging hmm. you know so out of trauma and out of these negative what can be defined as negative experiences can can be shaped and facilitate it into something that's truly positive if, if, if you navigate the space the right way and that you need to. Yeah. And, and when you were growing up in this environment, um, I've heard you say that this importance of, of people being connected, being really, you know, I guess, understanding of who they are and connected to their culture or connected to, their, um, to something bigger than themselves, for example, such as, such as community. How did that... How important was that in you growing up, feeling connected to, to something bigger than yourself? Uh, it, it was important. I mean, like, you know, when you're growing up in suburbia, you want to be able to play sport. You want to be able to feel like um, you, you can connect on levels with people around sport, around music. has been a huge thing for me. Um, comedy has always been a huge thing for me. You know, I grew up on a very, very healthy diet of George Carlin, Bill Hicks, MASH is one of my most favorite shows in the world. Um, and, and, and my brother, he's good, almost 10 years older than me. He was able to facilitate for that for me at a very early age. So not only have I had the experience around Aboriginal culture, not only have I been protected as somebody, um, you know, that had, came from a great upbringing, that had a great education, and I make no... Um, and I make no reservations about that. I know I've had a great education. I know I can articulate myself and, and, and I can use my voice in the right way. But as well as that, still from an early age, I was still exposed to these comedians like George Kahn, like Dave Chappelle, that did say that whilst you, Henry, are having a lived experience that is great, there's so many people that aren't having that same experience. And there are so many curious questions to ask. And yes, the spectrum goes you know, I feel like George Kahn can be a little bit extreme around paranoia towards government. But the sentiment of what he's talking about, again, is about not about dividing us and not allowing an establishment to divide us, but to be able to bring us together. Heavy metal music for me is seen as, you know, for a lot of people is seen as such a negative, um, is such a negative form of music in terms of like what they talk about, self-harm, suicide, not belonging. But I've always heard heavy metal music and, you know, champion bands like Slipknot because what they're actually saying is like be yourself one of my you know one of my favorite quotes comes from Corey Taylor the lead singer of Slipknot and that 
and and I heard this quote when I was 14 and it still resonates with me today. And I, I truly think that it has defined many of the paths that I've walked on. And that quote is, um, do you serve a purpose or purposefully serve? Hmm. You know, and, and, I, I, and I, I'm, I'm, I've, I'm so fortunate to have been enriched with all, so much stuff that has then enabled me to be able to find groups and like-minded people that has enabled me to feel that sense of identity in those ways. You know what I mean? And I'm not somebody, you know, and I'm somebody that is, I, I love heavy metal music and I love house music because house music comes from predominantly, um, you know, marginalised um, gay and lesbian African-American communities in Southside Chicago. And I think how wonderful this music that came from such a, a place of oppression, like a place of oppression, how much that music is now so universally loved and appreciated by everybody. I think it's such a beautiful thing. And the other thing that I'd say about identity is that, you know, when it comes to me, you know, my son, for example, being having an Indian mother and an Aboriginal father, you know, I don't say to him he's half Indian, half Aboriginal. You know, he will always know that he is Aboriginal and he will always know that he is Indian. You know, I'm not going to do things in halves. I want him to be able to know that he can get the most out of both of these cultures, you know, and, and that he can, he doesn't need to address himself as somebody that is going to um, equate himself down to a mathematical equation. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, wow. Yeah. Um, I just saw it. I just mentioned something about George Carlin because um, you brought it up. I, I wasn't brought up on George Carlin, but I've been lucky enough to discover his work in the last couple of years. And um, I discovered an interview with him and he talks about, or the question was about when he was able to really achieve success. And he says that it was the moment that he looked for, for many years, he was doing comedy. He was doing it on television. He was being censored. He was curtailing his language, the way he expressed himself. And he did that because he thought that that was expected of him in some way. And then I don't know whether it was through an epiphany, a psychedelic experience, whatever happened. And, and he basically said, fuck this, I have to be me. And when he, when, he, when he began really being himself, his own yeah. comedy rose, his popularity rose, and he you know, became the George Carlin that we, that we know. Yeah, he, he, re, he reinvented himself. Um, and, 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 and he was doing it at a time when um, these, it was the first time in the United States where young people were actually able to question the establishment in the way, you know, in, in a way that was very blatant. It was the first time that mainstream journalism and, and cameramen were able to go into, you know, war zones and then feed this footage back to this box in American family living in families, living rooms. And people suddenly go, Whoa, that's what war is. You know, prior to that, it was a very patriotic, you know, my father's going to go and fight for my country. He's doing something that's righteous and he's patriotic and the nationalism and be proud of your father and you go and follow in his footsteps. But whilst he's gone and then the father, would get the, the dads and I would come back and they would never speak about the war themselves because they would constantly be too traumatized. And then suddenly the rest of the United States were getting a, 
you know, they were, through the television, they were getting the exposure at the violence and the graphic nature and the stupidity and the mindlessness of war. George Carlin grew up at a time, not, he didn't grow up at that time, but he reinvented himself at a time when all of that was the catalyst for so much progressive change in that country, which is unfortunate why, you know, just on a side note, it's unfortunate for me to kind of see things going, starting to go a little bit backwards over there. But certainly, you know, George Carlin, I, I've got so much respect. And I've watched his black, the black and white stand-ups of him on TV, man, and he's just as funny, hmm. you know? But certainly the way that he condu conducted himself and the way he did his comedy post that, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's, has, has, has had a, a very, very huge impact on me yeah. as an individual. And that brings me to it, like I'm a, I'm a filmmaker, so I, I kind of work in the space of, of storytelling and images. Um, and how important was it to you growing up to have role models or people that looked like you or sounded like you or felt like you um, either on screen or in another, you know, in a real life sort of capacity? For, did, did you see images of yourself? Did you hear words that reflected your own lived experiences on, on screens? No, not, not that much. Um, I didn't see much Aboriginal representation on television. I didn't see much representation of adopted families on television. Um, I, I, even, even today, um, I, I, I get a little, I have a little gripe around taking the human, and this is something George Carlin talks about as well, um, by the way, sucking the humanity out of the terms that we used to use and replacing them with terms that are very um, bureaucratic, very medical. You know, you take like shell shock, it becomes post-traumatic stress disorder. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's this new, there's this new one called, um, what's the cognitively, I can't remember, but it was, it was something. But like, yeah, I, um, to answer your question, I didn't see too much representation, but I certainly had role models. And those role models probably didn't have the same lived experience as me. But there were, that I were able to, I, I, there were certainly things I was able to cherry pick from their own lived experience that I could directly relate back to myself. And I suppose, you know, looking back as a teenager, I was very rebellious. I was very angst. I went to a private school. I didn't understand why they were so strict about the uniforms and stuff like that. I, 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 I was suspended more times than I have fingers. I, 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 I was terrible as a teenager. And as a young adult, I was quite a, I was a horrendous person to, to, put, it, to put it frankly. <laughs> but um, but I, I understand that now, much more now because I realized that I was trying to break out. I was trying to, I was trying to find something beyond you know, the, the, the curtain that was in front of us. And, um, and I knew that there was something there because I had that, I had that voice of Carlin in my head. Hmm. I had that voice of Bill Hicks in my head. I had heavy metal music telling me to, to, to serve a purpose. You know what I mean? So certainly role models in that regard were always people that stood for something. Role models were always people that tried to go against the grain and role models were people that, um, that asked curious questions. Um, and now I can see how much of my upbringing um, was facilitated by that through my family asking the curious questions and role models asking curious questions. Mm. Yeah. I think um, George Carlin speaks about the way that, yeah, that over years terms are just um, 
vanilla vanillaized if that's a word yes so, yes. so yeah, that yeah, they yeah. you know it, if if we still called it shell shock we would be forced mm. to confront the reality and we would be forced exactly. into action but we call it post-traumatic stress disorder half of us shake our heads the other half of us don't care and we just walk away thinking this is all a little bit too hard um, exactly and, and ex that's exactly right and what it does what it does as well, it, it ends up justifying bureaucracy. It justifies pharmaceuticals. I'm not like I'm not like a conspiracy theorist. I'm I'm a skeptic as the next person, but I do believe that there's a humanity behind you know wor working with people that have a you know that's why in Aboriginal culture we don't even call it mental health. We call it emotional health and well-being because um, because there's a humanity to it. There's a level of a connection to it. You need to be able to um, you need to be able to connect with someone at a level that goes beyond a clipboard or beyond a medical term or beyond, you know, vanillaizing as you, as, as you, you rightfully put it, um, um, these terms. And you, you've obviously seen that, that bit by George Carlin and oh, all too, the power to you. Too many times. <laughs> so um, maybe the, the, the next logical step is to talk about how now you as an adult um, are taking your lived experiences and your personal experiences and applying that to, to assist others. Um, so you're working at VACA. Um, I wonder yeah. if you can tell us what VACA stands for and what VACA does and, and the work that you do. Yep, sure. So VACA is the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency, David. So they are the leading um, ACO, Aboriginal Controlled Community Organisation. They're the leading ACO in Victoria um, around child protection. So VAC has been around since 1977 and they have from day one worked with the Department of Health and Human Services and Child Protection, which falls under the DHHS banner to fight for the rights of Aboriginal children in terms of if they are going to be removed um, from their family, that it's imperative that they are placed with uh, foster carers ideally kinship carers and kinship are relatives and if not kinship then foster carers that are able to um that are able to create a cultural space for that child to be able to maintain their connections so so really vaca came out of the back of the stolen generations of so many aboriginal people removed from their families and and placed into into non-aboriginal families and then that disconnection and loss of culture that came from that VACA really came in as a platform to be able to ensure that that didn't happen to Aboriginal children anymore. And so there's a range of programs at VACA that go through, um, that work with families that have um, children that um, are on child protection's radar or um, through to families that have had children already to, um, removed and placed into foster care or kinship care. Um, and so one program will work with a family to ensure that that child isn't removed. And then another program will work with that family to help reunify um, them and work through whatever issues need to be worked through so that they can have their child back. So that's in a nutshell. Um, and uh, my role there is uh, I'm the organizational development coordinator. Um, I coordinate two programs. So I, I coordinate the Diploma of Community Services, which is in partnership with Swinburne University. Currently, DHHS have a mandatory requirement now that any staff working in child protection as caseworkers need to have a minimum diploma qualification. And so we do the Diploma of Community Services in partnership with Swinburne, but at VACA, and my role is to coordinate that, but to also ensure that the content that is delivered from the diploma is culturally relevant and appropriate to the work that 
the staff are going to be undertaking day to day within the Aboriginal organisation. The other program I coordinate is the traineeships program. That's basically just giving our next generation of young Aboriginal leaders an opportunity to be, to, to once they finish school, um, or if they've been early school leavers, for them to be able to come in, work for 12 months, get some workplace experience in a community service organisation, and also do a certificate for in community services. Um, and basically equip them and plant the seed for them to be able to get ahead um, and to be able to set them up maybe for a career at VACA, post-traineeship, but at least, again, to plant that seed for them to have a resume, for them to have a qualification and for them to have the confidence to be able to then go and pursue a career in community services later on. I hear myself say that and I think, well, you know, that's, again, how I've, that is definitely, I've brought my lived experience to that, those roles because I had a mainstream education. I understand what it's like to sit in class and be told that Captain Cook discovered Australia, you know what I mean? And, and, um, and, and, I, and I'm all about giving young people a shot because when I was young, you know, I, 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 was, I was an idiot and I didn't, I didn't think that there was anything beyond, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday nights out clubbing, you know? So in that regard, um, I love my job. Um, and then the other side of it, as well as the DJing, which I, which I really have kind of really focused now to really just do that solely in a way to be able to advocate for um, different issues that I believe in, whether it be Aboriginal issues, emotional health and wellbeing issues, uh, or whatever, whatever. Um, and uh, through that, I get my therapeutic out <laughs> and I get my emotional, I get to check in with my own emotional health and wellbeing. Um, and it gives me an opportunity to raise some money for Vacker as well and to be able to, you know, I, I say there's no greater, there's no greater space to be able to progress a positive conversation about stuff than the dance floor. And I really, I truly believe that. I think that, um, that if you can um, engage people through music and you can engage people through um, the therapeutic aspects of what music can offer, then you're creating the most ideal space to be able to have um, proactive conversations around issues that affect us. Wow. You know, it's great. I, I got to release music. I'm, I'm at the moment trying to work on an EP um, that'll come out through a label that 50% that of the earnings of it will go to a film for a philanthropic purpose. So there's all, I'm always trying to find a reason and a purpose behind why I'm doing something. Um, and I think that's important for other DJs to kind of catch wind of as well, because I do see a lot of drugs. I do see a lot of um, unhealthy behaviours in that scene um, that um, seems sometimes counterintuitive to um, how mindful a lot of these people actually in the scene are towards wanting to look after themselves and wanting to ask curious questions and wanting to find answers to things that they are looking for. So, um, you know, there's different platforms for me to be able to use my voice but one great bit of advice that I've, I, I was told was, was that in Aboriginal culture, we're an oral history. So in order for someone to be ready to learn, they need to be ready to listen. Hmm. And I think for me to be able to use the platform that I need to use and to be able to use my voice in the most powerful way that I can use it, I need to balance that just as significantly and just as importantly with the way that I choose to listen. And um, I don't know if you know a bloke, 
that I've been watching at the moment, Daryl Davies, but he was an African-American man that, um, uh, that went into the Ku Klux Klan and engaged in conversation with them. Yeah, I do he know. He didn't go in there. Yeah. He didn't go in there and ostracize them and persecute them and come down on them like a ton of bricks like the Ku Klux Klan did for hundreds of years to African-Americans. He wanted to find a middle ground. He wanted to understand. He wanted to engage. And he's had over 40 Ku Klux Klan members end up handing him their robes and quit the Ku Klux Klan. You know, so at the moment I'm working on, especially in this social media climate where everyone seems to become, one day they're a health expert, the next day they're law experts, you know what I mean? It seems to be a flavor of the week type thing. I think that it's important for me to be able to learn to facilitate conversations in a way that does consider all perspectives no matter how much I disagree with them and no matter how absurd I think some of this rhetoric is, I think it's important that they should feel safe enough to be able to at least meet halfway with me. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And I think um, we're living in, for me, the strangest moment of my 43 years on the planet right now. And so many, so many things that perhaps were simmering below the surface have now been, you know, scratched and, 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 and coming out. And, and that includes people's, yes. people's prejudices, um, people's fears, people's concerns, um, hopefully also in a good way, people's love and concern and, and, and compassion. But um, yeah, I also have to, to, to take care of myself in engaging um, in the social media space in a lot of these issues. And, and to be honest, that's probably the main reason that I decided, I've been thinking about this podcast idea for many years, but I realized that I had to, like yourself, look for another platform um, to, to go deeper into these chats because, you know, I've never been on Twitter, but there's only so much you can write with 140 characters and, and all it does perhaps is just- You see that with Trump. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. And um, again, all the power to you. I think um, I think social media limits our ability to be able to understand one another. I think social media as well um, gives us a false sense of security around defining our best selves. Um, it also gives us, um, it, it also doesn't give us the opportunity to be able to be vulnerable. Um, and I think being able to express vulnerability and to be able to say, hey, you know, sometimes I have to eat some humble pie. Sometimes I have to take a step back and instead of wanting to immediately defend and um, respond in a way that is getting on the defensive, sometimes I need to, you know, and, and I'm as guilty as the next person, you know, and, you know, there's a quality of me that I love a good argument, you know, there's that as well. And I'm a cynic at heart and this and that, but like, you know, it's, at the end of the day, you are right. We're at a time right now where the world has changed and what has been simmering, as you so so well put, has come to the surface. So the question is, what do we do now that it's at the surface? What do we do now to make sure that we don't miss this opportunity? You know, because this opportunity might only come around once. And if we miss this opportunity because we ended up dissolving back into the, to, into, into, um, backward ways of thinking and, and, and being on the back foot and being defensive about our own ideologies, then we, we will miss this opportunity. And at the end of the day, you know, the power is with us. And I think there's a level of paranoia at the moment where people think that 
they're under control, they, they don't have control of things. And I think it's important to just go, look, you can focus on what you can control and don't worry about what you can't control. Because when you focus on what you can control, you realize that you, you, are, you do have self-determination. You are in a country that gives you access to a life and a lifestyle that so many other people miss out on. So don't feed into the hypocrisy of these conversations, you know? progress things in a direction that's going to make things better. Yeah. And I, I really look forward to seeing social media get to a, a place where more and more of these conversations are, are being had. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's people like yourself, David, that are, that are on the front line who are, that are facilitating that process and, and, and playing an integral role in, in trying to create that space. So um, I, I know I can only speak for myself, well, I'm very grateful. Oh, thank you. I mean, I guess I, I've got a few more gray, gray hairs in my beard. So, you know, I'm, I'm a little older than this sort of this Instagram generation, right? And, but what I'm seeing is that, you know, bringing up George Carlin again, and, but that era of artists, and whether that's comedians, DJs, musicians, filmmakers, writers, they're was more often than not their art and their ideas and their politics came together and art was used as a platform to engage and inspire and provoke and have to, 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 to open a door, open a space to have interesting discussions. And what I'm really seeing and I'm fearful of it continuing in this negative way is that um, you know, social media is, is these days so much about like providing this manicured image of how you want to be seen. And mm. I've actually been disappointed to, to, that, that we haven't seen enough artists such as yourself coming out and using their art, whatever that is, to have a message. And, and, and a lot of the reason is because the minute you start to say something controversial, perhaps it can affect your number of likes and number of views and number of followers. And, and for many people I've seen you know, instead of like using that platform to raise their ideas and beliefs and ideologies and ways to make the world a better place, they're sort of be coming back in. So hopefully, you know, people can, can watch you and see what you're doing and, and using not just your work in, at VACA, but your, your, your mouth and your, your music and, and things to, to entertain people. That's a very valid way form of doing with your art but but music can can go f so much deeper to really affect people and to to open minds and 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 hearts so all power very much to you thank thank you Dave. I, I wholeheartedly agree and you know the i think that space that that comedians need to be able to have freely to be able to to demonstrate their art and to showcase their art it, there's no is is so in, integral and so important right now than it ever has been, and I get fearful as well, just like you, of of, of social media and cancel culture taking, not taking that right away for for comedians and for artists because I think innately creative people are stubborn in that regard, but I do think that it can disenfranchise an artist enough that they stop using the platform. You know, and they stop using their voice. And I think that if that 
whatever happened, I think that's incredible. I think that would be incredibly sad. And I think that would be um, not only incredibly sad, but it would be in some ways a little um, even more, it would be even more sad because it would be from our own undoing as a people. And then it's easy to justify, it's easy to point fingers and blame government or blame authority or blame the system, the establishment, the status quo, you know, but go to a country where you really do see, you know, a little a level of mediocrity, you know, and then come back here and then say that we have the same thing. And I will tell you that I promise people that they they won't come back and say we have the same thing. So don't let our own, don't let our the way that we are be our own undoing around this stuff because the power is within our hands. Yeah. You know? so, yeah. And so maybe that's a perfect segue to six weeks ago, approximately, we had the Black Lives Matter protests around the world, including where we are in, in Melbourne. Um, what was your experience of, of that sort of during and, and after? Um, very mixed, David, very mixed. I think, you know, I, I felt... I felt really, I felt like what was simmering that really came to the surface on, and that really was demonstrated on social media really took a lot out of me. I found myself in a lot of conversations as the only Aboriginal person, the only black advocate for the fact that the Black Lives Matter protests had to happen and that we'd waited so long for change to come, that change hasn't come. So if all lives matter, and how can you say all lives matter if black lives don't matter? You know what I mean? And I just was, I was seeing so many counterintuitive conversations take place. And what was even more disappointing was I was seeing so many peers in the scene that I really like engaging in conversations that were completely opposite and were the antithesis to what they would normally try to drive. This, this idea around the dance wall being a culturally safe space, the idea around um, the idea around being trauma-informed, the idea around showing mindfulness and compassion and empathy, all of that was, I just didn't see any of that at all. And um, that really, that really affected me. And I, honestly, like coming into that, the Black Lives Matter stuff, I was already kind of emotionally not in the best place. So I probably wasn't armored, you know, my armor was already pretty weak. And then when I had to go in and advocate the way that I went into, I probably didn't realize that I didn't have the emotional energy to, to, to deal with what I was seeing. But after the Black Lives Matter protest, I basically broke down. Um, the protest itself was so powerful and you had black communities from all over the world coming together and they all shared the same horror stories of marginalization and oppression amongst black communities, whether it was here, whether it was Polynesian islands, whether it was in countries in Africa, whether it was Papua New Guinea, whether it was the United States. What was telling was that these were the same stories happening across the world. And to have a platform for them to be able to do that around 10,000 people was incredibly empowering for the movement. Um, but, you know, unfortunately with COVID and stuff, that kind of took away a lot of the ability for us to be able to have that strong commentary, which is why it's just as important now for me, for example, I'm doing a campaign at the moment around the deaths in custody. 
people, I don't know if you've noticed on social media, a lot of people are doing this thing like day one of lockdown, I'm doing this, or day five of this lockdown, I'm doing that, or, you know, 21 days of call your mates. Day five, I called this person, and here's a screenshot of both of us talking on, on video chat, you know. Well, I'm doing a day-to-day -day campaign, but I'm doing it about deaths in custody. And I think it's important for a couple of reasons, David. One, because it puts a face to numbers. And only the, the only thing people see, see are numbers. They don't see the faces. And for some reason, if they do see faces, it's generally always a mugshot of that person. It's never a photo of them in a happier time with family. And the second reason is simply because Black Lives still matter. You know, hashtags, Black Lives Matter isn't a hashtag that we've suddenly ridden. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's been happening forever. It's been happening for years. And um, just because it's come to boiling pot now, it doesn't mean that it's cooling back down. So I think it's important to be able to continue the conversation, but to, I'm doing it very, very blatantly, you know, because that's the other platform for social media as well. It's not just about your perfect profile pic and your, as many likes as you can. It's about being able to yeah. use it as a tool to be able to advocate. So my experience of the, the protest was, was, uh, was interesting. Um, I was heavily criticised because um, I, because I've gone to the Black Lives Matter protest. At the end of the day, man, what can you do, you know? And uh, my, my dad always told me, you know, use your energy where you can, don't waste it where you can't, you know? So that's what, that's where I'm, that's where I'm at now. I'm, I'm, I'm um, uh, you know, the protest was the protest, but my day-to-day -day life as an Aboriginal person is the lived experience, um, of, of, of somebody who still, you know, walks into a bottle shop with an Aboriginal flag t-shirt and, you know, still gets looked at. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, went into, I went into a bottle shop once with the Aboriginal flag and I went to go pay for it and my card declined. <laughs> and it was just because I had to transfer money across. But that feeling of awkwardness that I had standing there as people behind me were impatiently waiting for their turn was something that, you know, is is something that Aboriginal people as their lived experience is, is a stigma that we have to continually deal with in 2020, you know? And um, I just hope, you know, people realise that things aren't still, haven't started to simmer back down, that this is, this is just the, this is just one more step towards reconciliation. Yeah. For my people. Yeah. Wow. And it's, it's amazing to, to hear that because I think this word racism is widely misunderstood and we can think of it generally in, in, in much more dramatic terms, let's say. Um, but there's all of these very subtle or let's, let's call it latent racism or discrimination that, that we don't even realize a lot is just so ingrained in our, in our nature, in our way of speaking, in our way of thinking. And, a lot of it, you know, is not because it doesn't come from a, well, who am I to tell you? What do you think about, about you know, your experiences of racism, whether that be um, direct or this more sort of latent racism or people not even understanding that their feelings could have a discriminatory nature to them? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. And, um, you know, I, I think my experience hasn't been so latent in, in, in terms and that's also because I'm I'm pretty strong um, I'm pretty strong-minded in terms of um, being able to stick up for myself and to be able to advocate for myself so in that regard I think people know 
not to kind of fuck with me in that regard, but to put it bluntly, but certainly the undercurrent of racism um, in my experience is definitely there, whether it be that bottle shop experience, whether it be being at a restaurant with my son and my wife and being, you know, having four other tables walking after us and we're the last ones to have our orders taken. Um, taxis sometimes as well. That's a very common experience. Um, uh, you know, I can, I can say I'm fortunate that perhaps I don't have the so much, um, you know, I'm not seen from, and this is racist in itself, you know, but I'm not seen as that black. So maybe because of that, I'm kind of, kind of get away with it. <laughs> you know what I mean? But um, it's there and it exists. And, um, and um, I'm trying, you know, we just need to be able to work through that. Um, you know, I surround myself with people from all different cultures, you know, my, my, my mother-in-law is, you know, and, and my, you know, a whole part of my family, my in-laws are all, are all abroad in India, you know, so um, I try to be as open-minded as possible around facilitating a space for myself where I welcome all different cultures and all different people and walks of life. But I think a part of that comes down to the job that I'm in, the, the platforms that I use, the, the experiences that I have for myself that aren't the same as for other people that might work in a particular industry that might be dominated in a particular way. They have a particular way of thinking, a particular kind of value system, or perhaps where they're from is, is, is somewhere that's a little bit more insulated, like a smaller community that, where they, that they can't have that space to be able to get to know people at a wider level, you know, but because I always had friends respect me as being Aboriginal, I always respected them for who they were. And it was a very, it wasn't even a, it was nothing. It was a no, no it wasn't even a conversation. It was just a mutual respect, you know, and um, I've got huge, um, you know, my oldest friend um, is from a very rich, uh, very enriching Italian family, you know, and I see the, I see the, the the family structure in Italian families and how they're similar to the the enriching structure of an Indian family, and then I, and then there's stuff that I learn about Indian culture that directly comes back to things that are within Aboriginal culture. So again, we're more we're more united than we're probably told to believe, you know. Um, yeah, so and then having white parents, and I'm Aboriginal, you know, and having that experience every single day of my life. You know, unless I, you know, unless I was going to completely just mindlessly disregard my upbringing from that within that context, you know, uh, why shouldn't I be enriched by as many cultures as possible? In terms of in terms of the racism itself, I think we're learning to call out racism. I think we're learning to see the undercurrent of racism a lot cl more clearly and a lot more blatantly. Whether it be through, whether it be through unprofessional journalism, whether it be through um, um, backward rhetoric, whether it be on the radio, whether it be whatever platform, you know, I think we're more clued in to be able to call it out for what it is. But I also think that it's very important that we're considerate that racism is systemic racism is systemic racism. You know what I mean? When you have an artist who's trying to do something that might raise questions or could be seen as racist, I think it's important to also be mindful of what messages that artist might be trying to convey. 
are they actually being racist or are they actually driving a conversation around anti-racism? You know? As you said yourself, there's no direct answer to it. It's just a conversation, isn't it? Yeah. You know? But I mean, what you're doing in, in bringing these uh, issues to the table is, is what's required at the very first step. And, and, and that's brave. It takes bravery and it, it puts... Um, it puts ourselves out there for a, for a whole lot of criticism as well as praise and so forth. So I just wanted to, um, I know you're, you're also a busy guy, but I just wanted to touch and then sort of finish up on, on I, I, I've heard a speech that you did where you, you spoke about the importance of breaking the cycle of transgenerational trauma. Um, and I just, yeah, thought maybe you could sort of expand on that, perhaps also including your own lived experiences, whether now as an adult, you're also experiencing some effects of the way that, the, that, that your childhood was and, and, and then leading on to you have a young, a young child now and how that sort of manifests into how you live your life with uh, another new human. Yes, yeah, yeah, sure. I, so my little boy's name's Aiden. So Aiden was the name that my natural mother gave me and then my adoptive parents named me Henry. So just, that itself. When I say breaking the cycle of transgenerational trauma it can be from anything big all the way through to just little tiny things that create that safe space, that safe cultural space. So, um, you know, Aiden, you know, Nellie and I, my wife and I, Neely and I, we, we, put, we put Aiden to bed together, you know. He has a relationship with his grandparents. He is secure, he is loved, he's nurtured, you know. And just on that basis, on alone he'll thrive because he's loved and he's secure and he's in a secure environment and i have no doubt that just for those reasons alone he will absolutely thrive now when i guess the, the best example in terms of transgenerational trauma i can i can offer is in terms i mentioned earlier my sister's own experience and you know without speaking too much to her without her being able to kind of speak to it herself it, i guess it comes down to um her her, her natural mother was drug affected. Um, she was in a domestic violence relationship and she was pregnant with my sister. She was pushed down the stairs when she was a, a few months old, when she was a, um, a few months pregnant with my sister. You know, all of the things that were meant to be in place for her natural mother to be able to go through a pregnancy in a healthy way, when they weren't there. And the supports that she received, that I received weren't the same supports sorry, the supports that my natural mother, Joe received weren't the same supports that her natural mother received. So these things that when, so when my sister was born, you know, it was, um, uh, there was the, the natal alcohol syndrome. Um, there was um, my sister, she was um, born prematurely. Um, when she was flown from Mildura down to Melbourne, um, it, We've been told that when she hopped off the, when she was carried off the flight in, um, when she came to Melbourne um, on a dead cold winter night, all she was wearing was a nappy and a very loose t-shirt. Um, and then you see the way my sister grew up, she, even though my parents facilitated the same environment that they facilitated for me, it's the old environment versus genetics argument, David. Is it your environment that shapes you into the person that you become or is it genetics or is it a little bit of both? I know for me, it's a little bit of both. My sister, unfortunately, the experiences of genetics for her, unfortunately, 
resulted in her having transgenerational trauma in a way that she carried on the exact same problems that her natural mother had. So my, my sister's uh, borderline personality disorder, the bipolar, the drugs, the alcohol, um, which, you know, um, has settled a lot um, for her. And she's a, she's her own person and that's fantastic, you know, and all the, all the power to her. But for a time there, when she was trying to form her own identity, when she was looking for those same role models, she wasn't able to find that because she didn't have, she wasn't equipped with the love and the security that she needed from the day dot. Yeah, does that make sense? And that manifested into a range of issues that would fall under the umbrella of transgenerational trauma. So things like bad eyesight, not the best IQ, when mum was taking her to extracurricular, not extracurricular, but she was taking her for classes um, to get extra tutoring so she could catch up school-wise. You know, my sister said one day to mum when she was getting dropped off maybe a year into going to this tutoring, you do realise, mum, that every time you take me to this tutoring, all you're showing, all you're telling me is how stupid I am? Hmm. It's very profound because as a parent, you're trying to do the right thing and you've got, your, you've got the love and the best interest of your child at heart. And you're trying to equip them with the knowledge and the education so that, that when one day they'll be able to go and fend for themselves in the world. But sometimes you do the wrong thing for the right reasons. And sometimes you have to do the wrong reasons. In this case, it was the wrong thing for the right reasons. But I guess, again, just to put it in, just to put it in a nutshell, that, that's what the transgenerational trauma really is from a very tangible perspective. Yeah. And, and, and after seeing that myself, I'm, I'm compelled to ensure that Aiden doesn't have that same experience and he won't have that same experience. And I can guarantee that. But he will go through some stuff that I would have had to go through and that a lot of us mob have had to go through. Um, but he'll know how to deal with it because we'll teach him how to deal with it. We'll guide him to, through being able to deal with it. Hmm. I just wish other Aboriginal people and community and Aboriginal families were able to have the experiences to be able to equip themselves in the same way. Yeah. Beautifully said. Um, all throughout this chat, I can't help but think that all of these people that you've spoken about just seem to be amazing human beings. Um, your life of being, no, really, I mean, very caring, compassionate, um, parents and seem to be very connected with what's happening or what what's required but it, it also shows I mean that story and thank you for opening up in that personal way also with your sister's story it shows that this trauma is real and it is a I mean you're it's a case in point you sort of you have different children that have been brought up by the same loving family and 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 but however still have different battles and and have to battle different demons and a lot of it, I'm becoming increasingly, I know you're studying psychology at the moment, if I'm not um, incorrect, and, and I'm finding these discussions super interesting of nature and nurture. And, and, and to that, I hope that people that hear that also, because it's very easy to, to say, oh, we should just get on with life and move on and everything is good now and you're, you're in a nice family and you went to a good school and you've got clean clothes and what do you have to to complain about, but so often psychological trauma, either through 
your own lived experiences or even the lived experiences of, of your, your people, let's say, or generations before you, very definitely can carry on in a, either a conscious or even subconscious, subconscious way and raise, raise themselves at, you know, as an adult perhaps even. So I think that's really essential what you've just spoken to and yeah, it's. Yeah, I think it's, 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 about, um, it's about being a, a lot of people need to see things in a tangible way. And unfortunately with psychology, trauma, things like that, unless, unless there's something quite evident um, like a psychotic episode or something where you see you see uh, emotional health and well-being playing out in a super negative way, like 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 how we've seen Kanye West most recently um, with his episode in front of all the cameras. I feel bloody terrible for 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 anybody who has a psychotic episode in front of the media like that. I feel terrible and hopeless for for people like Kanye West, but. People need to see it tangibly to be able to understand it. And unfortunately, it's not, it's more common that it actually doesn't play out like that. Um, the same with racism. People need to see it tangibly. Unfortunately, it doesn't always seem to play out like that either. It's more common than it is that undercurrent simmering racism. Yeah. So these types of conversations and having this dialogue makes it easier, I guess, for people to be able to justify that tangibility for them in terms of going, okay, well, that does exist. Yeah. And there is stuff going on. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I hope that, you know, advocates like you, advocates like myself and the people that we surround ourselves with, I, I am surrounded by very loving, enriching, beautiful people, friends and family, um, because they all think the same way as us, David. They all think the same way. They all think that, they, it's important to ask the curious questions. It's important not to settle for the status quo, but it's also important to be a good human being and how you can pay it forward to whether it's your child, whether it's to somebody else's child, to whether it's a friend who's, who needs to, you know, who you need to reach out to. You know, there's this really great, you know, it might be maybe a great kind of finishing point to, to, to our fantastic chat today, David, is, 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 is a wonderful um, anecdote that I heard. So there's a bloke that's stuck in a hole. He's stuck in a hole and he can't get out. And the priest comes by and the priest says, what are you doing stuck in that hole? And the guy's like in the hole, I'm all right. Just go, I'm, I'll be fine. And the priest says, listen, let me, let me pray to whatever higher power that, that that priest believes in. Let me pray and that prayer will, will, will come true and you will come out of that hole. And the bloke in the hole says, no, 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 don't worry about it, Father. Just leave me be, yeah? So the priest leaves, and a little while later, a fireman comes by. And the fireman sees this bloke in the hole. He says, bro, what are you doing in that hole? And the guy's like, I'm fine. Leave me here. Just go on. And the fireman's like, let me get my ladder, put it down this hole, and you can climb out of the hole. And the bloke goes, no, 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 no. Don't worry, fireman. Just go on. Get out of here. And so the fireman leaves. And a little while later, the bloke in the hole's best friend walks past. And his best mate goes, brother, what are you doing in that hole? And his mate goes, I'm stuck in here. I can't get out, man. And so his best friend jumps in the hole. And now they're both stuck in the hole. And the bloke that's stuck in the hole looks at him and goes, what are you doing? Now we're both stuck in here. And his best mate goes, it's all right. I've been here before and I know the way out. <laughs> Beautiful. That is the perfect way to, uh, to finish up in lots of ways.
Uh, it's been, it's been, um, I knew it would be interesting. I knew it would be personally for me also emotional in some ways. Um, and it's been all that and, and more. So thank you for your honesty and all power to, to you. Um, and I really need to say that, um, uh, how old is Aiden? He is two. Two. Very lucky to have a father like you. And I look forward to uh, perhaps seeing him on the dance floor one, one, one of these days. I have no doubt that that will happen. Yeah. I, I just, I really appreciate you having me on. And, um, you know, I think um, all the advocacy work you do as well, I think it's fantastic. And, um, you know, to be open-minded enough, of, you know, to see, see the other podcasts as well and to see how you're facilitating conversations across different arenas, across different topics, across different ideologies. I think it's great and, you know, keep it up. And um, I look forward to hearing and seeing much more of you. Thank you, mate. That's amazing. And before we go, um, plug yourself, DJ Fosters. Um, tell me how we find you and tell us also you do a two, you do a couple of fundraisers um, a year as well. So take the time to yeah, thanks. So uh, Fosters, um, you can go to facebook.com forward slash Fosters DJ. I put my mixes and releases up on there. I also have a, prog- a radio show called The Weekend Chug. That's on Saturdays on Kiss FM, Dance Music Australia, um, kissfm.com.au. Um, and um, that program, uh, that show is not just about showcasing great house and techno, but it's also about looking at emotional health being issues, looking at how DJs navigate an often difficult space that's rife with drugs, that's rife with alcohol and how they look after their own emotional health and well-being, and offering tips and advice to other peers in the scene who might be establishing themselves or might be um, kind of stuck in, stuck in a hole, um, so to speak. Um, so the weekend chug, Saturday is midday from 12. And the show that comes on before mine called Premium Tuna with Mount Mike and Liam Kendall. Uh, the, our two shows partnered up to run two fundraisers a year at Lucky Cop on Chapel Street. And they're called the Premium Chug Raisers. And we raise money to, to um, fund the programs back at VACA, where I work, to be able to help fund programs and connect Aboriginal children and young people um, and their families to Aboriginal culture. So um, unfortunately with COVID, we've not been able to do them this year, um, but Keep uh, keep an eye out on socials for when this stuff does settle down. I'm pretty damn sure the first party that we do have back is going to be huge. So I look forward to the invite. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Thank you, mate. It's been it's been awesome. No worries. Thank you, David.